Sportsnet Today. Listen on the air, online, on the Sportsnet app, and always on your smart speaker. Sportsnet 960, The Fan, Calgary. Welcome to Sportsnet Today. I'm Ryan Pike, joining you for the second time this week from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studio. Uh, I'm here for the next couple hours. Post Media's Wes Gilbertson joins us in the second hour. And uh, I imagine we'll probably get into uh, some Calgary Flames topics then. Uh, show is brought to you by Doug Lacey's Basement Systems. Do you have cracks in your walls, floors, or ceilings? Visit dlbasementsystems.com for a free estimate. They are all things basementy. Uh, as always, please you know download, if you can't listen live, download the podcast in the Sportsnet Today feed. And as we go along, text us your thoughts at 960-960 on your text line. Uh, it's been... Uh, we'll, we'll jump into... Uh, some hockey talk momentarily, but uh, we'd be remiss if we began uh, the program without, uh, you know, giving some thought to the passing of Pele. Uh, for those of you who are uh, young like me, and I'm really stretching the definition of the word young, uh, you probably didn't see a lot of Pele, uh, you know, playing football or soccer, as we call it, North America, you know, live or in person. He retired in 1977, so you probably didn't see a lot of him in person. But, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the, the formative figures in the world of uh, international soccer, uh, you basically you're looking at one or two key names. Uh, Pele was one of them. Diego Maradona was the other one. The, the two gentlemen were named to, you know, uh, FIFA's all-century team uh, a few years ago. So, you know, he uh, passed away at the age of 82. So, you know, give uh, giving some thoughts to him uh, and, you know, everyone <laughs> in the soccer world today. Uh, now let's uh, switch gears pretty quick. Uh, we're going to the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, and we're joined by Brock Otten. Uh, Brock Otten wears many hats, uh, as many people in the hockey world do, uh, especially in hockey media. He's the director of scouting for McKean's Hockey. Uh, he does an OHL podcast for the Hockey News. And uh, in addition to all that, uh, he's still in a labor of love putting together the indispensable, in my view, OHL Prospects blog, uh, ohlprospects.blogspot.com. It's old school, but it's uh, probably one of the better pure clearinghouses of scouting information for those of you who, like me, might not watch a lot of OHL hockey in person and need to rely on uh, the eyes and ears of other people. So, Brock, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Ryan. What an intro. Wow. Yeah, you need to do less things, so I I have a, a shorter intro for you. (laughs) <laughs> I'll work on it. <laughs> so this is, this is, you know, I know in the, the junior hockey community, this is one of the most fun times of year. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the world juniors are, are ongoing uh, over the next week or so. <laughs> they still have a week left. We're, I think we're in the middle of the, the round robin in Halifax and Moncton. Uh, and we're deep enough into the season now that I think, you know, a lot of uh, folks uh, are starting to get their, their bearings on the upcoming draft class. So we might as well start with the thing that, that's the, the top of mind, uh, the World Juniors. Uh, obviously, Team Canada, a little bit lighter on OHL representation than it has been in, in previous years. These things are cyclical, as I'm sure you, you're, you would want people to be aware of. But uh, from your perspective, from the OHL, who's really standing out? Who's impressing you? Who are the, the players that, you know, at this time of year make you go, hmm, he's doing pretty well? Are we talking about just in terms of the World Juniors or just in terms of the OHL in general? Uh, let's do OHLers at the World Juniors first. Sure. Um, you know, I think the, the obvious one, um, you know, from a Canadian perspective, the first talk about would be Brennan Hoffman, um, returning player. I think that he's somebody who's still trying to find his, his bearings on, on Team Canada. I think 
they had him on that first line to start, um, you know, kind of shake things up a little bit. I think that he's going to get better as the tournament goes along. I think that a guy like Brennan Hoffman is trying to figure out how to play at the international level. He's somebody who can sort of walk that line or, or needs to walk that line between being physically abrasive and being successful, if that makes sense. And I think that at the beginning of the tournaments, um, especially international tournaments, there's always sort of like a hesitancy for these power forward types who are trying to figure out, you know, just how can I play and how can I be successful in these types of tournaments? Well, especially, so sort of, I, ima- yeah, I imagine for, for physical guys, I mean, the OHL standard of officiating versus the IIHF standard of officiating is a little bit different. It's probably the first few games you're trying to figure out what you can get away with. Yeah, and especially when you see in that very first game, you know, the hit from Zach Dean that saw him get tossed and sort of was a big difference maker in that loss to Czechia. And Brennan Hoffman is a guy that those are the types of plays that he likes to play or uh, likes to make on a sort of routine basis. And that's the way that he needs to play to be successful. So uh, I do think that he's somebody, like I said, that's going to have to to really get used to playing. But it's not his first time. Obviously, he played last year. He's played the U18s. Um, it's not his first rodeo, but I would say it's his first time really being a go-to prominent guy, and that adds more pressure. And he's also entering the tournament on a bit of a low note. I don't think he was playing extremely well with Peterborough. Peterborough, in general, has kind of struggled since adding him from Flint. Um, it's kind of messed up their team chemistry a little bit. So he's kind of coming in on a bit of a low note. So, yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of OHLers, he's sort of the first one. Um, obviously, it depends on whether you consider Shane Wright and Brant Clark OHLers. Uh, I think that there's a good chance we see Brant Clark return to the OHL after the World Juniors. I think that there's just there's not really a place for him to play in Los Angeles right now. And I think sort of the smart thing for them would be to send him back to Barry, who's got a pretty solid team in the Eastern Conference and has a really good shot to, to go for a long playoff run. Shane Wright, I think it's more of a toss-up. Um, I think we're going to see his rights moved to the OHL deadline coming up. Yeah, we, we saw, Where I think, uh, Grant McHagg on Twitter uh, threw it out there, uh, the possibility of him heading to the Ottawa 67s before uh, the end of the World Juniors even. Yeah, I, I think Ottawa is, is definitely a possibility. I think London is definitely a possibility. I think, um, I think there's any team that's competitive in the OHL is going to want the opportunity to add Shane right into their lineup if he is indeed returned. I mean, he's obviously a difference maker. I think that for a lot of it, the Kings of Frontenac's hands are going to be tied. I think that this is going to go through his agency. It's going to go through Seattle. Um, and that's really going to limit the amount of locations that are possibilities for Shane Wright. So, um, yeah, I think I think Ottawa and London would probably be the two sort of main contenders if I were to pick. Um, and even that's even if he returns. Uh, I don't think it's set in stone. I really don't. I think anything you read of, of Seattle and anything they've mentioned uh, about Shane Wright this year in their management has suggested that they feel pretty comfortable with sort of rotating him in and out of the lineup um, and don't really see the value in sending him back to junior for another year. And whether their opinion has changed in the last month or so with him going to that conditioning stint and playing really well, um, maybe his performance in the World Juniors will have something to say about that. He, he played but, a couple of games uh, against the Calgary Wranglers here in the Saddle Dome against uh, you know some some pr- a pretty good AHL team, and you know he was one of the better players for Coachella Valley against uh, one of the AHL's top outfits. So, I mean, 
you know, for, for a guy his age, he, he stood out in positive ways a lot. Yeah, and it's great to see that he was able to go down there and sort of build up some confidence again, you know, sort of heading into this tournament with Canada. And hopefully this sort of springboards things too. And there's obviously the opportunity where, you know, he could go back to Seattle after this tournament, um, continue to practice a little bit, um, you know, maybe maybe Seattle doesn't care if they burn a year of his ELC, right? Like, I don't think it's as big of a deal as it once was because players are going to get paid no matter what these days, um, especially younger players. There's no real – I don't think there's real, uh, such thing as a bridge contract for a player of Shane Wright's caliber. So when you have to pay him, if you, if you feel that something is going to be best for his development. I don't think you really care all that much about burning that ELC. And I know I've, I've heard people sort of mention that um, for other players as well. I don't think it's as big of a deal as it was 20, 15, 10 years ago, right? Um, when those sort of decisions were a lot more under the microscope. Um, and then obviously, to, to go back to your question, the last player would be Ethan Del Mastro, who is playing a top line or top pairing role for Canada right now. And um, I think he's playing pretty well. I think Del Mastro is at his best when he's able to keep things simple. And I think that he's done a pretty good job of that so far. We've even seen him kind of be somewhat aggressive uh, in the offensive end, trying to jump up and make things happen. And uh, I think he's the perfect partner for, you know, either Zellweger, who he's mostly been paired with, or if they decide to take, shake things up a little bit, you know, maybe Brant Clark, either way, he's most comfortable in that sort of stay-at-home role. I think uh, when you're talking about playing at, this sort of level in the OHL, he's obviously on a top power play for Mississauga and, and playing about you know 30 minutes a night for them. Um, but, you know, in this sort of situation, I think he's most comfortable being that sort of stay-at-home type. And uh, one last one. I know the uh, the Ottawa 67s, we'll talk about the 67s in a bit more detail uh, in a little bit. Uh, I'm curious uh, how Tyler Boucher and, uh, I'm always getting this name wrong, Vincennes Rohrer? Uh, Vincennes, so it's like Vinc- a, a I got Chen. I got the yeah, I got yeah. the last name right, but the first name wrong because that's yeah, how yeah. I roll. <laughs> um, yeah, so Tyler Boucher, um, I think he's played a lot better this year now that he's a little bit more comfortable in the OHL. I'm very confident that he is going to be an NHL player in some capacity, and I think we're seeing that at the World Juniors too. If you've been watching any of the United States games, I think he's been one of their more consistently effective players and he sort of has that game that's very tailored to playing at the pro level right he he's quick um for the type of game that he plays so skating is not an issue for him um he plays a heavy game he knows how to get to the net um his physicality yeah kind of like we were talking about with brennan Osman, he needs to learn how to walk that line a little bit better um suspensions have been an issue at the ohl level but uh, i think it will be less of an issue at the nhl level um where players are a little bit bigger and stronger and he's not able to lean quite as much. I just don't know about the, the, the actual offensive upside of Boucher. I don't know if he's ever going to be able to live up to that high draft slot. Um, you know, even if he becomes a really good third or fourth line player, people are always going to compare some of the players who are taken after him. And, and I don't think that's necessarily fair because there's players who, you know, are probably going to go ahead of Tyler Boucher. You know, just the basic math, the basic odds suggest that a couple of the players inside that top 10 are not going to be prominent NHL players. Um, but people are always going to talk about the players taken after Boucher and, and you know, what could have been. Um, I do think he's going to be an NHL player. I just don't think he's got sort of the hands, the puck skill, the ability to blend the two 
to to play at sort of an NHL pace in a scoring line role. Um, and Vincenzo Rohr is just a real good high energy guy, very versatile, kind of like a Swiss Army knife to play any sort of role that's asked of him. I kind of feel bad for him right now at the World Juniors because. I mean, Team Austria is is really struggling. They just they don't have the depth right now um, to skate with the likes of Canada, the U.S., Sweden, the the powerhouses at this tournament. And you're seeing that some of the other sort of uh, we'll call them middle powerhouses, the middle teams at this tournament. Um, I think even they have developed more depth than Austria of late. Uh, and Vincenzo Rohr, uh, I, I saw something that was uh, pretty cool on Twitter today that talked about how the coach was was really impressed with with Rohr and his speech that he gave um, during the intermission yesterday. And obviously, they're going to be in tough against Canada tonight, and it can be really tough when you're on the losing end of these sort of blowouts. But in reality, Austria's tournament is going to come down to that relegation round, right? Um, and if they're able to avoid that. And uh, he's the type of player who I think can come up in sort of those those big moments and be a key guy. And he's somebody that is consistent night in, night out for the 67s. And uh, another guy I don't think has extremely high NHL upside, um, but who I feel pretty good about his likelihood of carving out some kind of role at the NHL level. Awesome. Um, staying on the Ottawa 67s bent, I know, I know you've written about this uh, this player in the past. You and I have spoken about this player in the past in DMs and, and emails. Uh, the Flames' lone OHL prospect right now is Jack Beck of the Ottawa 67s. And Jack Beck's had a weird few years. Uh, he obviously, the whole league did not play a 2021 season. So the Flames drafted him in you know the sixth round. Essentially, I don't even say sight unseen, but... You know, they hadn't, they were judging off his 17 year old year rather than his draft eligible year. So that's, it's tough to fit to project. And then last season, he had that, you know, that gnarly injury. I think Scott Wheeler at the Athletic put together a really nice piece uh, detailing uh, the challenges Jack went through getting back with that uh, kidney contusion, which just, I don't like even just thinking about what a kidney contusion would do to your body is just not fun. Uh, and then, you know, this season, he got off to a really good start. And then, you know, he, he suffered an injury. And he, I don't think he's played since the end of October. Hopefully he's on. I, I've been hearing he might be back soon. Don't have anything definitive on that. But fingers crossed because, you know, you, you were, you know, writing on uh, on your site about this kid's potential. I mean, he I know people around here are very high on, you know, the Flames drafted Andrew Mangiapane as a smallish offensive guy in the sixth round from the O. Uh, they drafted Matthew Phillips as a smallish offensive guy from the WHL. Rory Karens, who is in uh, in Rapid City right now, they drafted as a smallish offensive guy from the O. So they seem to have a type they like. And Jack Beck, you know, based on you know what he's done when he's healthy, has been a really good player for the 67s. But I'm just curious, from your perspective, you know, what does he need to do to keep moving forward outside of stay healthy? And what do you think his chances are of potentially getting a contract? Yeah, I mean, I feel so bad for Beck. I really do. I mean, you already talked about the kidney issue last year, which is a total fluke thing, right? There's nothing you can really do about that. And then this year, that upper body injury that he suffered that's kept him out of the lineup um, for a large portion of the year, it just seems like he can't stay healthy. And it's a real shame, too, because he was playing really, really well this year, in my opinion. I thought that... Um, in my viewings of Ottawa early on this year, it looked like he had gained a step, which was really, in my opinion, the key to his chances of being an NHL player. He was never really the most dynamic skater. Um, and when you pair that with a guy that's sort of only average size, 
uh, it was going to make things difficult for him. But I really thought that it looked like he'd improved sort of that uh, athletic skill set to go with some of those really good instincts that he has. I think he's a really smart player. Uh, I think he projects as a potential two-way guy as well, not just an offensive guy. And he was really, really playing well for Ottawa to start the year. It was a big part of why Ottawa got off to that hot start. Uh, yes, it's been a team approach, and they're continuing to play well, but Beck was, was a reason early on. And I feel really bad that, again, it seemed like he was turning the corner and was going to put together a really good season, and then another injury occurs. So I think the key is him coming back and finishing the season really strong. Um, and I've sort of heard the same sort of things as you have, that there's expectation that he could return to the lineup sometime just shortly after the new year, um, which is, which is great. Um, and I think that how he finishes the season, not maybe in the regular season, but in the playoffs is going to dictate whether he gets a contract from Calgary. And even if he does, I could really see Calgary sending him back for his overage year. It's not something that happens a ton, uh, after players get their ELC. But when you look at his situation and just that, he really hasn't played very much when you look at the last year from the pandemic, um, the kidney issue, the injuries this year. You know, would he be ready to take on a large role at the AHL level? Would he be able to, you know, be a contributing player at the ECHL level at this point? Uh, I think that there'd be a lot of there. There'd be a great benefit to sending him back for an overage year, even if they do give him an ELC. I don't think there's any reason to rush a prospect like Jack Beck, who, uh, let's be real, is a longer shot prospect, um, but somebody who I do think can be an NHL player if developed properly. And um, it, the key is just staying healthy. Yeah, and and I think the X factor there. I mean, looking at the the Flames uh, contracts for next season. I mean, I imagine the Flames are going to try to sign Matt Coronado uh, coming out of college this year. So he's a guy who, if he signs based on his pedigree, would probably be pushing for NHL duty right away. So the the, the new faces on the Wranglers next year in the entry level system right now only appear to be Lucas Siona, and so maybe if you're back, if they you know he's the only guy they have coming in outside of Siona, maybe there's an opportunity to get more developmental reps. I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they manage it. Cause I, I'm of the same mindset of you. I think that he has tons of potential, but you know, if you're, if you're the flames and you're trying to judge him, he's played 45, 46 games since being drafted. And you know, he hasn't really played a lot of games consecutively due to just some horrendous luck. So uh, hopefully he can stay, you know, get healthy and stay healthy. Cause you know, there's, when a guy when guys can score the way he does or generate points the way he does and play away from the puck the way he does, I think there's a, an abundance of potential. Uh, speaking of potential, uh, just to, before we leave, uh, I'm just curious, uh, how is the, the upper end of the OHL draft class? I know looking at some of the, the, the rankings that are kicking around there, it seems like it's a little bit leaner this year in terms of tippity-top first-round talent from the O, but it, you're looking at some of the names out there, you know, Cal Ritchie, Colby Barlow, Quentin Musty. There, there seems to be a lot of guys who could come in, you know, in a year or two post-draft and, and help out a lot of clubs and the guys, you know, a lot of guys with a lot of potential. Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I don't think it's a great year uh, for the OHL. I think coming into the season, we kind of thought it could be. Um, but when you look at some of those guys who were projected to be lottery picks prior to the season starting, they kind of haven't had great years. Kyle Ritchie, you know, has been kind of underwhelming for 
a rebuilding Oshawa team, so it is a tough situation, but he hasn't been terrific. Um, Cam Allen has been uh, sort of a disappointment playing for Guelph. He looks like he's sort of searching for an identity on a team that has disappointed uh, largely coming into the year. Guelph was sort of expected to be one of the powerhouses in the OHL this year, and they've been just not very good. And now we're sort of entering a situation where they're probably going to sell at the deadline. Um, So you've got those two who are sort of number one and two coming into the season, and both of them have kind of underperformed. And now we're seeing them as maybe even fringe first-round picks. Uh, Cam Allen is a guy who's dropping out of the first round completely. On a lot of uh, projections, uh, Cal Ritchie might not be far behind if his play doesn't start to become a little bit more consistent, especially in in such a strong draft year, right? Uh, Colby Barlow, is what he is. He's a strong power forward who can put the puck in the net and play both ends. And those types of guys, especially given the way that Barlow can skate, um, they don't grow on trees. So I feel pretty good that Barlow is going to be maybe the first player off the board from the OHL this year, maybe in that like 12 to 18 range. Uh, It's pretty early for kind of a solid projection like that, but he's a solid player and there's a solid projection as an NHL player as well there. Um, Quentin Musty is the real wild card. He kind of started pretty slow. Then Sudbury made a coaching change, and he's been on fire since. He's he's playing with a lot more fire, a lot more passion, um, and in producing more as well, which obviously helps. And the upside there is probably the highest of any of the guys from the OHL this year. It's just a matter of, you know, whether you think he thinks the game well enough um, to be sort of a top line talent at the NHL level. So that's going to be something that scouts have their eye on, sort of in that second half. Um, outside of those four, there, there are quite a few guys who I think are, are good players, but I don't think the depth is tremendous from the OHL this year either. So, uh, yeah, overall, it's uh, looking like a pretty lean year. Well, that's uh, a lot of hockey left to be played, but uh, it'll be really interesting to see how, how the rest of the season shapes up for the O. Brock, thank you very much for taking time out. I know there's, you know, anyone who covers junior hockey and the world juniors, this is a busy time of year, but hopefully a fun time of year. So thanks really, uh, you know, a lot for, uh, for taking time out and joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks. Brock Otten from all kinds of places, McKean's Hockey OHL podcaster for the Hockey News. Uh, he runs the OHL Prospects blog every year. Uh, big, big plug. He does a, a scouting uh, combine with a bunch of other scouts. They sort of do a survey of the top uh, OHL prospects. It's always illuminating, and you get really, you know, tons of detail about guys you might not see very much. Uh, he joined us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Dine in, pick up, or have your game day special delivered. Find out why Atlas Pizza is a 14-time Consumer Choice Award winner, 6060 Memorial Drive, Northeast, or call 403-248-3344. Around the corner, uh, it was a pretty eventful and productive Wednesday evening for the Calgary Flames organization on a few levels. Uh, We'll get into what went down and the significance of it when we return on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Back to Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Welcome back to the program. Ryan Pike with you for the next half hour by myself. And then I'm joined at the top of the hour by Postmedia's Wes Gilbertson, where I imagine, based on the two of us being around, we'll uh, we'll dive deep into the Calgary Flames 3-2 victory on Wednesday evening over the Seattle Kraken down there in the Emerald City, in one of the most beautiful buildings in the NHL. Uh, folks, if you... 
if you get a chance to go down to Seattle, and I recommend it. It's a nice city. Everyone, you know, everyone wears plaid. You know, it's it's the city that brought us grunge and Starbucks and a bunch of other good things, depending on your perspective on those first two things. Uh, but it's a, it's a cool town, and they the building's right downtown by the Space Needle, and it's it's worth it's just if you're an engineering nerd or just a person who likes cool looking buildings, it's worth going down to. So yeah, Calgary Flames bouncing back from a, a tough loss on Tuesday against Edmonton with a victory in Seattle. Uh, so we'll dive deep into that when Wes joins us uh, at three o'clock. Uh, as always, we're broadcasting to you live from the Doug Lacey Basement Systems downtown studio. Make sure you download the show on the Sportsnet Today feed and text us your thoughts as we go along the text line at 960 960. Um, it was a pretty productive day at the office for the Calgary Flames organization, you know, hockey-wise on Wednesday night. Uh, I know, obviously, everyone's aware, uh, and we'll dive into it in more detail, about the, the Flames' victory. But uh, the the Rapid City Rush, their, uh, their coast team in the ECHL, their minor minor league affiliate, the team that feeds players to the Wranglers, they picked up a victory. Uh, the Calgary Hitmen. Uh, hosted the Edmonton Oil Kings at the Scotiabank Saddle on Wednesday night and put up an eight spot. They beat them eight to two, uh, completing a two-game sweep over the Oil Kings. The uh, the Hitmen are in action tonight at seven o'clock uh, at the Saddle uh, Actually, up at up in Red Deer. There, uh, if you want to go to the game, you're going to need to do with some driving. But uh, you can hear the the game on Sports at 960 to fan at seven o'clock. They're playing the Red Deer Rebels. Uh, the Hitmen won. Yeah, they've uh, quietly the Hitmen been having a pretty productive last few weeks. It's uh, kind of a rebuilding year for the Hitmen. They you can make an argument that outside of a few guys uh, who have been NHL draft picks and some depth spots, uh, you know, Sean, uh, Sean Chagall uh, in the Anaheim organization, uh, Tyson Galloway in St. Louis, and a few others who are having really nice seasons. You know, it's it's not as star-studded a hitman group as we've seen in the past, but they, they're putting together a really nice middle part of their season and uh, getting themselves in the thick of the playoff mix. Uh, over in Bakersfield, uh, I know everyone is much more familiar with the, the Flames prospects this season than they have in the past because it's much easier to see them all in person than it has uh, in the past unless you really love flying back and forth from Stockton, California. But uh, the Calgary Wranglers were back in action after the holiday break. They played uh, a game in Bakersfield against the Edmonton Oilers affiliate, the Bakersfield Condors, and uh, the Wranglers had themselves quite a night. They one nine to two. They put up seven goals on on uh, one Edmonton goalie, Oliver Rodrigue, uh, an Oilers prospect, and then Ryan Fanti, the backup, uh, gave up two in the in the third period. So none of uh, the oil, none of the, the the Bakersfield Condors goalies had an early or an easy evening of it, and nine different Wranglers players had multi point evenings. Uh, so. I know, obviously, in this market, uh, we're very familiar with the fine work done by many Wranglers players, most notably Matthew Phillips, who uh, recently returned to the the Wranglers. Actually, point of fact, Wednesday night was his first uh, game in a Wranglers sweater since uh, early December, and he slipped from first place in the in the American League scoring t- race to, I think, eighth. So it shows you he performed well enough when he was around that when he wasn't around for almost three weeks, he didn't really fall that far out of the, out of the scoring race. Uh, and then he had a three point game, two goals and an assist to bump himself back into, I believe a tie for fourth or fifth uh, for points. So he's, uh, if he plays one more game at this rate, he'll be you know, vying at, with the, the guys at the top of the scoring race for, for the lead, but a pretty good game for the Wranglers. Uh, again, nine people had, uh, had multi-point games. Matthew or uh, Dustin Wolf, I believe, made twenty-five or twenty-six saves for his league-leading seventeenth win. 
Um, there's a lot of very impressive work being done down there by some non-Matthew Phillips players. Uh, we don't need to uh, litigate the excellence of Matthew Phillips at the American League level. He's very, very good. I don't think you can debate how good he is at that level. Uh, but some of his teammates have been having very, very nice performances. Uh, just to highlight a few of them. Uh, Dustin Wolf, last year's uh, American Hockey League Goaltender of the Year, uh, it is that was the third year in a row that he won his league's Goaltender of the Year award. He is going to be a strong contender for a fourth. Uh, he currently leads the, the American Hockey League in both wins and shutouts. Uh, he's a top five contender in save percentage amongst goalies who've played uh, over a certain number of games. Same with goals against average. Uh, the Wranglers were very charitably to say a, a work in progress in their own zone for the first few months. Uh, they don't really have what you would call a, a blue chip defensive prospect. If you're, if you're asking, is there a Shillington or a, or, you know, a, a Rasmus Anderson type of player down there who can just go in and play and eat up minutes and be a regular contributor pretty quickly. The closest they have down there is probably Jeremy Poirier and Jeremy Poirier when he was in, uh, you know, in his draft year, the the knock on him was great offensive player, defensive game, still a bit of work in progress. Sort of, I would liken his playing style and the holes in his game to sort of a, a French Canadian version of Oliver Shillington from you know when Oliver Shillington was drafted in 2015. The knock on him was great offensive player, great player in transition, play away from the puck, needed some work, and so they sent Oliver to the American League and he put in the work and then he turned himself into a really well rounded player. That process is beginning with Jeremy Poirier. He's, you know, at times he he's a little bit wonky away from the puck, but he, you know, he's he's quite good offensively. But when your best defensive, when your best uh, defensive prospect is a guy who is occasionally a bit of a challenge defensively, it's understandable that uh, your goaltender might have a bit of a tough time early on in the season, and he uh, Wolf did, but he really you know pulled things together as the team began to play more of a, a cohesive five man defensive game. It wasn't just left the young defenseman; it was sort of a, a team effort. And the the Wranglers have really put it together. They're currently tied with the, the Coachella Valley Firebirds for first place in uh, the American Hockey League's Pacific Division. Uh, we're heading up to the All-Star break pretty quick in the American League. We're about three weeks away. And it seems very likely that if Mitch Love isn't the coach of uh, the Pacific Division's team at that uh, event, he'll be in very strong consideration. Uh, whoever's coaching the first-place team as of January 1st gets to coach the uh, the All-Star team from that division. And the Wranglers are tied. So I think uh, Wranglers hold the tiebreaker. So if you're really excited to see Mitch Love go to Laval and uh, represent uh, the Wranglers at that event, I mean, there's a good chance he will, but he won't be alone because there's a lot of uh, a lot of the other Wranglers doing well. Uh, Jamie Port or Jacob Pelche, uh, second year pro, 21. He has 30 points in 27 games. Connor Zary is 20 because he has a I think I think he just turned 21. He had a late birthday, uh, but he has 29 points in 27 games. Uh, player I want to talk a bit about uh, who's a bit of a dark horse is really having a good season that you know, we probably don't talk about enough about is Emilio Peterson. Um, Emilio Peterson, he's, you know, missed a bit of time. He's had a couple minor injuries. He was, uh, you know, early on in the season, a bit of a guy who was lost in the shuffle. The Wranglers have, uh, for lack of a better term, many, many bodies. And when you have uh, a Phillips and you have, you know, a, you know, all these other forwards they have, I'm just pulling up a chart. Uh, 
when you have a Pelche, when you have Ben Jones, Cole Schwint, Connor Zary, Matthew Phillips, all these guys, you know, and then you have, you know, guys, you know, who play more complimentary roles like Walker Doerr, Adam Klapka, those guys, you might not want to use sort of a, a smallish offensive forward like Emilio Peterson in a checking role. And so Peterson's role wasn't really clear early on. Uh, same thing. He had the same challenge, uh, you know, last season where, you know, he showed really great, you know, work in spurts, but he was sort of a guy who had a lot of bumps in his game and they end up, you know, sending him as a healthy scratch from time to time. And so this season, 22 games, 22 points, he's really seemed to have found the consistency that I think the the Flames organization was hoping he'd have. Uh, really good with the puck, really creative. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people are familiar with his draft class, but in his draft year, he was referred to as, as the YouTube kid because he first grew, you know, came to prominence uh, playing hockey in Norway as a, a 10 or 12-year-old because of clips his family posted uh, of him on YouTube just dangling the puck and he's he has that kind of eye-popping offensive talent it's just a question of can he get himself into positions where he can really utilize it well and this season Peterson's done a really nice job with that consistency and as a result he's thrown together a bunch of multi-point games he's you know gotten on the scoreboard more often than not uh, in the games he's played and you know if you're if you're the Flames and you're hoping to have some call-up options that aren't the usual suspects. If you want to, you know, if, if you know, we always hear about uh, Bradford Living talking about the push from below, where, you know, if you're on the NHL roster, you want to have the, the some AHL guys nipping at your heels because you don't want your NHL players feeling completely comfortable in their spots. And same within, within the roster itself. You don't want your top six guys getting too cozy in their spots. You want them to feel like they have to, to battle the guys lower in the rotation for ice time. And in the American League, you not necessarily want only two or three guys feeling like they're the the default options for call-ups because you want to have that competition down there too. And if I could pay a compliment to Mitch Love and his group, I think they've done a really nice job, you know, helping Shepard along the development of so many of these, especially young forwards. As mentioned, the the the, the group on defense is a little bit leaner. They, you know, they have uh, an interesting mix of guys, but in terms of high-end prospects, they might not have too many. But in terms of the forward group, the forward group probably has six guys that me not being an NHL GM or, or head coach, a bunch of guys I'd probably consider bringing in uh, for specific roles, depending on their other needs. And that's something that I don't think the flames organization has had as much of in, in you know, the past few, you know, three, four or five years. So they have options. That's the nice, that's the way that's my, the end of my long winded soliloquy about uh, the flames farm system. Uh, other guy who had a good night, uh, Lucas Siona, on uh, Wednesday's program, we chatted with Andy Eide from uh, uh, from NHL.com, who also uh, is one of the color guys who does Seattle Thunderbirds games, and we spoke a bit about uh, Lucas Siona. Lucas Siona had three points in the first period of uh, of Wednesday night's game against uh, the Spokane Chiefs. Uh, Andy was at the, the Kraken game, covering it for NHL.com, and this game was in Spokane, so you can't say Andy's the, you know, the, the magic formula there, but Siona having a really nice season. He's obviously already signed his entry-level deal, uh, but he has 40 points in 30 games, and he's one of those guys where, you know, those, you know, people who are, for lack of a better term, I'll call us prospect skeptics, people who go, yeah, but how, how much of that's on the power play? He's over a point per game at even strength. He's, he's one of those guys that, sure, he's got the physical gifts. He's listed as 6'2", 205, and he has, when you're that size, you have the ability to throw your weight around, but... 
he gets a lot of points from right around the net. He gets a lot of points on the power play from right around the net. He gets a lot of points just because he's willing to crash and bang and do the things he needs to do to either open up space for himself or open up space for his teammates. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe he's only a depth guy at the pro level. Maybe he's only a depth guy for the Wranglers and he just turns into a good AHLer. But, you know, part of drafting and development uh, these days is you want to do what you can to develop guys that you don't have to spend assets to get. Uh, if you're every year, your farm team has to go out and you have to find a half dozen guys to fill out your farm system so that they can, your, your prospects have guys to play with. Well, that's, that's time that they spend not improving other aspects of the organization. So, you know, if you're the, if you're the, the flames and you can find guys like to name a few Lucas Siona or Parker Bell, both in the Western league, both who are sort of big body guys who can fill out a bit and, you know, they can bail out the bottom six of your AHL team. Maybe they can fill out the bottom six of your NHL team. And then you don't have to go out spending assets, getting guys to fill those roles. So Siona really, really consistently having a good season this year in the Western League. Uh, if you, again, if you, if you ever had a chance to go to Seattle and, you know, it's not a long flight. It's a nice city. They have a gum wall you really don't want to touch. Uh, but they're, they're a good organization out there. They, and they have a lot of good prospects who are coming up, uh, Although I imagine it's probably awkward for Lucas Siona playing so much with Reed Schaefer, the, the Oilers' first-round pick. I don't know how if the drafting and or signing of those players made their friendship a little bit awkward, but it'll be more awkward next year in the preseason, I imagine, when they play each other. Uh, other than that, Calgary Flames had a, a pretty good bounce-back effort uh, last night against the, the Seattle Kraken. Uh, the Flames played pretty much the same game, I'd say, a very similar game as they did against Edmonton. Um, they put up 40 shots on an opposition team for the 12th time this season. Uh, for the fourth time, they converted that to a win. And if you look at sort of the the shape of the game, it's pretty similar. They, you know, they the even strength scoring against Edmonton was a saw off. The even strength scoring against Seattle was a saw off. It was 1-1 Calgary and Edmonton at 5-on-5. 2-2 Calgary and Seattle at 5-on-5. The difference was special teams. The The Flames took uh, that third-period penalty by Andrew Majapani in, uh, the, th- in the, the game against Edmonton. And, you know, you take too many penalties against Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl in that power play, they're going to hurt you. Uh, they managed to get a bunch of power plays against Seattle through, uh, you know, if you look at the penalties outside of, you know, a very weird too-many-men penalty that the Seattle coaching staff was very upset about. Uh, for those of you who wa- who did not watch the broadcast, uh the puck uh, got flung by uh, by Dan Vladar up the neutral zone along the boards in the Seattle zone, and I assume uh, Seattle forward Matty Benier, a rookie, was trying to get the puck out of the area immediately in front of the the, the bench because uh, if you're you know the Flames took a too many men penalty against Edmonton from a pass right in front of their bench and somebody came off the bench and played the puck and boom, too many men penalty against uh, Seattle. They were probably, you know, Seattle was probably hoping, okay, we've seen this. We've seen this movie before. Let's just move the puck out of the way. And Beneers got called for a too many men call, despite the fact that there was only five guys for Seattle on the ice. It was a very weird call. Uh, both the TNT and Sportsnet broadcast pointed at it out. Uh, Sportsnet even had a really nice slow motion replay going, what's going on here? And the answer was, I think the officials made a mistake. Uh, but the officials are human, and thankfully for everyone's sanity, the, that power play does not result in a game-deciding goal or a goal of any kind. Uh, Seattle was able to kill it off, and so it's merely a, a weird footnote in, uh, in the context of that game. But yeah, I think uh, it was one of those games where 
if you look at the shape of the season, uh, we talked on Wednesday about the the dramatic comeback Seattle had here uh, when they beat Calgary for the first time and how that dramatic comeback was, in many ways, a really important win for Seattle, where at that point, I think a lot of folks were looking at the Kraken going, I don't know, they're not very, I don't think they're very good. They weren't very good last season. They're probably not very good now. The first few weeks of the season might just be an aberration. It might just be noise. It might just be, you know, them playing a bunch of teams that are figuring things out. But the Flames had uh, played really good hockey that first few weeks of the season coming into that Seattle game. And then the that third period comeback by Seattle, I think, was one of the things that led to the Flames sort of getting away from their game a bit and the results sort of spiraling away from them for a few weeks. It was, you know, part of that lengthy losing skid they went on. And uh, if you're the Flames, you're hoping that you can look back on this win in Seattle, the the bounce back game after a really, you know, obviously every loss to the Edmonton Oilers is, is an emotional loss. And I think the Flames, you know, really hope for a better effort there and a better result in Seattle, and they got it. And, you know, now they're back in a playoff spot right now. Uh, granted, if you if you look by points percentage, the Flames are kind of all over the place uh, because everyone's played two, way different amounts of games. I think Seattle still has four games in hand on the Flames, and they're a point behind. So, you know, points-wise, Flames are a point up. Percentage-wise, they're a little bit out, but they're in the mix, and it's as a result of, uh, you know, wins like they had against Seattle, wins that I don't think were, they were getting uh, a few weeks or a few months ago. So yeah, it's uh, we'll get into that a bit more in detail uh, the next hour with Wes Gilbertson from Post Media, who, uh, who joins us for the next hour. And then uh, later on this hour, of course, or later, actually later on this afternoon, we're joined, as always, by uh, Pat Steinberg, who will boot me out of here and take over. Uh, but it should be, uh, it'll be really interesting to see sort of how things go because, you know, the the Flames have had a really good December. They were sort of, you know, a win one, lose one group or win a few, lose a few group throughout the first couple months of the season. P- their game was prone to, generally speaking, you know, they, they played the same style of game throughout the season. I think for the most part, you can make one or two exceptions that where the games completely got away from them. But, you know, they played a lot of close games. They played a lot of games that are low scoring. They played a lot of games where... They had, uh, you know, a shot at winning it. And I think the difference between the games they've won and the games they've lost has been, you know, you've had those lapses in the losses. Case in point, Mangiapane's minor penalty in the third period uh, on Tuesday against Edmonton. You have those lapses that sort of cause things to spiral momentarily. And in games where they don't have those lapses, they're very capable of, of, you know, just sticking with the program and wearing teams down. And, you know, if you look at that Seattle game, I mean, the first period shots were basically, I think the shots were exactly even second period shots were close, but skewed towards Calgary a teeny tiny bit. Third period was mostly Calgary. Uh, and I think it was because the flames play that kind of style of game that has a lot of pace, has a lot of hitting, has a lot of forechecking and it wears you down. And by the end of that game, you know, Seattle looked like they didn't have a lot left in the tank. And, you know, we, I, I, we talked about this, uh, Patrick Dumas and I, uh, on Wednesday, I think that's sort of the 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 style the Flames are going for. That's sort of what Daryl Sutter wants his team to to look like. You might not have you know a lot of guys making highlight reel plays. You might not have a lot of quote unquote stars who are you know being consistent difference makers. But I think the shape of their game has to be wearing teams down, you know, and just 
breaking them over the course of uh you know, uh, you know, if you make an analogy, if we're if we're uh, looking making a boxing analogy, I don't think the the Flames as constructed are a team that's going to throw some wild knockout blows, but they're a, a team that's going to have to use a lot of jabs and sort of you know smart little things like that to gradually wear a team down, and then by the time you get to the third period or the the late rounds, they you know they they break you, and you know that happened against Seattle. That's happened a few times this season when uh, the Flames have had success, uh, but. The question is, can they do that consistently? And, you know, we'll see. They're back in action New Year's Eve uh, against uh, the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, that's an 8 p.m. start. So for those of you making your New Year's plans, uh, beware. You're probably not getting out of the building until about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So either have someone hold a spot for you or make plans that you don't need to have reservations for or rush places. And uh, transportation might be a bit of a headache that night. So be forewarned. Uh Make your arrangements early because New Year's Eve at the Saddlome, it's a it's a fun tradition, but it's always, you know, the end of the New Year's Eve game is always kind of wacky. So do what you can to make your life a little bit less wacky on New Year's Eve, at least in ways you don't want it to be wacky. Uh, around the corner, we're uh, joined for the second hour by Post Media's Wes Gilbertson. And uh, I imagine Wes and I will talk a little bit about hockey, maybe one or two one or two hockey topics, we'll see. Uh, please, please, please make sure you you check us out on demand on your fingertips with Sportsnet today. We're available on basically everywhere you can get a podcast. So if you get a podcast from basically any source, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, someone you know listening to us in our headphones on the street, uh, just search Sportsnet today. Hopefully you can find it because uh, you know we're always available for you on demand. Uh, so around the corner, we'll be joined by Wes and uh, talk to you around the corner.